Well, coaches, this is Dave Mullins, the host of the ITA podcast and managing director of the ITA. Somehow we've made it to the end of this crazy season and have reached the final episode of season two of the podcast. Hopefully you've got something out of my conversations with the guests and we will definitely continue to push out these podcasts every three weeks, starting again in mid-August. My guest today is Grant Chen. Grant began his college career on the UCLA club team before joining the UCLA tennis team staff as a student manager. He then advanced to director of operations and onto the assistant coach role on the men's side before being named the associate head coach. And then in 2018, took over the reins at Southern Methodist University, SMU. Grant is the epitome of the modern day college coach. He is a true CEO managing and excelling in all aspects of his role while finding ways to give back to the sport he loves in his limited free time. I wish you all a wonderful summer and thanks as always for listening and taking time out of your busy schedules to improve your craft. Brand Chen, thanks for joining us on the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Dave, thanks for having me. It's really uh, an honor and joy. It's great always to catch up with you and looking forward to our uh, conversation today. Yeah, this is going to be fun. So I want to um, just talk a little bit about your path to becoming the head coach at SMU, which is your current role. So you've taken a less than traditional path to this role. Can, Can you share with our audience your journey from UCLA men's tennis team manager to head men's coach at SMU? Sure. Well, you know, I grew up loving the game. I grew up playing the game. Um, my family plays it. My brother, you know, they, during the summers, they would drop me off at 9 a.m. at the local club and I'd be there till 5, 6 p.m. until they got off work and picked me up back for dinner. And that was kind of my summer days until I was, you know, all juniors. But I loved the game and I really wanted to go to UCLA. And when I got accepted, I, I just I ended up accepting it, knowing that my tennis career was probably done just because obviously the team was so strong. There were, you know, always a national contender. And, you know, I, I sort of accepted that. So I enrolled in UCLA my fall semester as a freshman year. I really, you know, kind of lost my mojo, my groove, whatever you want to call it. I, I think I was a little, little lost in, uh, in the whole college scene. And I think the main reason why was because I didn't, play tennis anymore. I wasn't involved in tennis and I wasn't in tennis. So, you know, I happened to have a couple classes with some of the freshmen and sophomores on Billy's team that year in 2000, 2001. And they were like, well, yeah, you know, our student manager is graduating. You should get to know Billy and maybe take over. So I approached Billy in February of 2001. It was spring of my freshman year. And they had just, they were about to leave the national indoors. I remember that because it was early, early February. And he says, yeah, let's talk after indoors and, you know, let's help me with camps and summer and all that. Let's get to know each other. And and then the rest is kind of history. So, you know, from then on out, I just became more inundated in the program and the team and doing whatever I could to make an impact in the program, helping Billy out, helping the team out with everything. And so um, I think as the years went on, I kind of took on more and more. Um, And I think it really kind of started with a lot of events and tournaments. So at the time with the ITA All-American for the Women, main draw qualities was at Riviera and pre-qualifying was at UCLA. And then kickoff weekend, NCAA first and second round. And those kind of things all kind of became part of my job description. And then, you know, travel, logistics, equipment. I mean, it all kind of sort of compounded. Um, so really enjoyed it. Delayed graduating college by seven semesters or seven quarters to stay as Billy's student manager. And then finally, I had to graduate. Uh, and so Stella and Billy were kind enough to keep me around. And, you know, I became the director of operations. And at the time, that was some kind of a relatively new thing in the college lot landscape. Um, and I kind of just ran with it and uh, kept on wanting to do more and growing it and embracing the opportunity. And then uh, one day, I, I think there was a little bit of a um, Chris Quinta, who was in my wedding, one of my groomsmen, uh, ended up heading to USC, a little bit of a pay raise over there. And uh, Billy and I had a heart to heart and I, I wanted to take the next step. So it was really kind of a remarkable ride. And after a couple of years there, I became associate head coach. And then after that, you know, one day my phone rang and 24 hours after the Wake Forest NCAAs. Uh, I was on a flight to Dallas. 
Wow. Um, and so take us back to your conversation with Billy then uh, when, when Chris left. Had, had you had any conversations before that or, or how was that kind of manifesting in your head? Or were you thinking about this might be an option or, or tell us a little bit about how, how that came about? You know, I think by then I, I had known that that head coach, assistant coach dynamics is is so personal and it's such a right fit type of dynamics. And I think Billy was willing to take a risk in me and a little bit of a leap of faith. And I also, in turn, wanted to take the plunge and kind of embrace this new opportunity, new experience, new role. Um, it was certainly a... Uh, you know, I think it, it took me a little while to kind of grasp my head around the concept and just, I was really, I think, kind of shifting gears. But at the same time, I also knew that college coaching and our role every single day is 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 so wide. And there is a large spectrum of topics and different, you know, responsibilities we need to be able to do. And I know tennis is certainly one component, the recruiting, development, fundraising, facilities, teaching, tactics. So, you know, I, I knew I, I was strong in some categories and I knew some of them I really uh, needed to learn the ropes um, and kind of uh, willing to learn from others and other coaches and mentors. And, you know, I've been I think I've been very lucky to have some great people and mentors around me that have been able to share a lot of their experiences with me. Some of it tennis related, some of it not, you know, and Billy was certainly certainly a very integral part of all these different components and my development as a from a college student all the way to, you know, where I am now, you know, someone I still talk to on a, on a daily, daily basis for his thoughts, his opinions, recommendations, but other coaches as well, you know, whether it's a, a Paul Anacone, who's someone I, I really have looked up to and, and has taken me under his wing to other great tennis coaches, as well as other instructors and educators in different fields. You know, I've been able to learn from the soccer coach, the golf coach, the basketball coach, um, teachers, mentors, life coaches, even someone like John Gordon, who I think is absolutely one of the most remarkable individuals out there. He's written so many books like the energy bus and training camp and sticking together. And I've read them all. Um, he's been so great to me to be able to kind of brainstorm ideas and bounce ideas off of, and what would you do in this type of situation? Um, and Stella, I mean, I'll tell you someone that I've been able to be around for many, many years, that's another coach uh, who's been so successful in her job description and in her role at UCLA with, with, with the women's team. I've been able to learn a lot from her as well. So um, I think a lot of great coaches were in the small coaching fraternity. You know, when you look at it, there's probably conservatively, uh, you know, 800 to 1,000 college coaches in the country, maybe a little bit more, a little less. And I think we all kind of help each other and, and want each other to do well. Very good. Yeah. So, uh, so when you made that, I guess you, you got that promotion, right? Uh, to, to becoming the assistant coach uh, from team manager. How did the players uh, respond to that? Were, were they happy? Were they like, who, who's this guy going from team manager to our assistant coach or, or sure. what was the team's take on it? I think the team really allowed me the opportunity to, to take on the role. And I think that's also because they knew by then I'd already been with the program for 12 years. And I think as someone who's been there for, you know, year in, year out, season in, season out, um, certainly a little bit different job description, but a lot of it, I think they knew how hard I work, how passionate I was, how much I cared about our players. Um, a lot of the returning players were players I'd seen since they entered the program, um, you know, and, and been a fly on the wall throughout the recruiting process and, you know, all those different facets that led for them to be at UCLA. And I think uh, they really allowed me the opportunity and certainly, you know, start kind of a different rapport with them, you know, and I think allowing to spend some time on court with them. And we had, you know, some remarkable players, you know, I mean, my first year as coach, assistant coach was 2012, 2013. We lost in the finals of the NCAAs to Virginia 4-3, you know, five in the third in the last match, you know, talking about as close as it got. And I'm pretty sure that year we were seated one at the NCAAs and Virginia was two. Um, but, you know, I mean, just an incredible season and guys, all, most of those guys went on to play professional tennis. Um, and some of them are still out there right now. Marcos is getting ready for the third round of the French open. Uh, but I think a lot of these guys have been so supportive and, and I think it's been such a great dynamics. And, and I think that rapport together with, 
longstanding histories and ties has allowed us to be able to continue that relationship in a different uh, role. Yeah, I, I asked that question, Grant, because I think we have a lot of coaches out there and, and probably a lot of coaches listening, y- young coaches who maybe have not played at the top of Division One and, and feel a little intimidated or insecure that, well, my, I, I wasn't a top player. You know, am I going to be able to relate to these these players that are better than me? And am I going to be able to coach them? And, are, you know, will they listen to me? So what advice would you have for, for that coach out there who maybe didn't play at the highest level but wants to coach? at the top of Division One at some point in their career? Sure. Well, I, I think to start off, I think it's important to remember that us as coaches are no longer the players. You know, thank goodness I'm not out there playing, you know, Brandon Holt and, you know, Will Bloomberg anymore. I mean, you know, the guys are. And I think that's something important to remember is that I no longer am a player and I never really was. I love the game, but I never obviously played at this level or the, or the pro level. Um, but I think... I was a student of the game still, and I was willing to learn and embrace and study the game as much as I could. And I think very important is, is to also get to know that player as well as you can. And I think remembering that each student athlete listens and hears uh, feedback and uh, tactics differently. So with player X, you, we might need to be a little bit more energetic, a little bit more passionate, a little bit more you know fire, a little bit try to spark them to get going um, and create the energy out of them. But player Y, we might need to be a little bit more calm, you know, because maybe they're already really nervous on the sidelines during the match. So I think it's always important to remember how does the player hear us? How do they receive our feedback and our discussion, you know, on the changeovers in that short period of time, what type of conversation can we have to put, put them in the best mind frame for the next two games of the match? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's something that's so great about college tennis. There are some conversations on the bench. We don't talk about tennis at all. I remember there was one player who was wound so tight that we needed to relax him. So we started to talk about what does he want for dinner? You know, what are we going to have? Ten- you know, just little things, a little bit more lighthearted. And I think that relaxed him. So when he was able to get in the rally, his body was a little bit more loose and he could kind of uh, swing freely. And then some guys, I think other players, you, you know, they might be a little bit uh, all over the place and you got to rein them in a little. And hey, we got to focus on this next game. We got to focus on where we're going to put our next first serve. So I think everyone is going to receive that data differently. And every individual is going to be a different type of coach. You know, even on my coaching staff, there's three of us. We all have very different approaches. And I think you start to understand how each player on your team, you know, during a dual match, you have six singles matches going on. I think there's a little different dynamics with each guy. I know there are certain players that maybe they're, you know, they've lost the first set down a break. Maybe I need to swing by for a changeover or two, you know, or if they're winning and everything's fine, I can leave them alone, you know, and, and I think everyone wants that. So I think a lot of times tennis is part of the conversation, but also asking and learning from the player, what type of conversation do they need? Not just from practice standpoint, but also from a competition standpoint, because I think a lot of those conversations are going to be very different. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I worked really hard of is everything I could during practice, learning from Billy and the other coaches and being in these conversations and one-on-one workouts. And maybe it was a one-on-one workout that I wasn't leading, but I wanted to be there, fly on the wall. So maybe when that topic came up during the match that weekend, I already had an understanding of what we did during the week. So also it is putting the hours and making sure you've, you've done your due diligence. Mm-hmm. So, so, so when, yeah, did, you know, obviously you're with the UCLA program for 12 years before you went into that role and, and were around some of the top players in the country on a, on a daily basis. But did you even yourself have some of those in, insecurities? And, and what is it you told yourself? Was it you've done the work, you've done the study, you've put in the time or how did you overcome those insecurities or did you have any? No, I mean, absolutely. They're all going to be there, even on a daily basis now, whatever your role is you're always going to think, is it good enough? You know, did I do everything I could? But, you know, I think deep down, we got to think about all these types of things as a process, just as we convey to our student athletes that, you know, whether it's a freshman or a senior, we got to think about 
the journey, not necessarily the destination. It's that old cliche, but I think there is a lot of truth to that in that, you know, every single day we have little battles and little hurdles that we want to overcome. And then if we've laid it all out there, then, hey, you got to let the, the, the chips fall where they land. And even, you know, just recently at the end of this season, you know, as soon as the season ended, I'm starting to think about next season already. What can we do differently? How can I improve as a coach? What can our staff do differently? So I took that same mindset, whether I was an assistant coach, a student manager, or the head coach. Um, but insecurities, I think, as a player, as a coach, are always going to be there. And it's going to be there in life. Um, any professional career you're going to be in, you're going to think about or doubt yourself. But I think it's important, you know, John Gordon has one of his books that talks about listening to the, the different voices in your head. Do you want to listen to the negative or do we want to choose to, you know, give yourself some positive feedback to be able to, you know, push that. And just as we tell our student athletes, it's the exact same mindset with our, with our coaching side, you know, a student athlete might think, God, you know, is my forehand going to break down today? Am I going to double fall 10 times? you know, okay. So those are the type of things that we need to practice. And it's the same thing for a coach. We've got to continue to practice those and put our best foot forward. And if we've done all that, then that's all we can ask for. You know, I, I know I am still growing each and every single day as a coach and I'm still learning more. And I also know a lot of the coaches who have been in this industry for 25 years are still doing the same thing. They're always looking for 1% edge to try to get better each and every single day with their team. Mm. And, you know, because of your less than traditional path to, to the head coaching role at, at SMU, your experiences, um, you know, as a team manager, director of ops, do you think maybe you view your role as a college coach differently to some of your peers? And, and if so, how? Great, uh, great point. Um, you know, I think I have a different lens than I think. I think sometimes I try to look more of a macro view of a, the job description. You know, deep down, yes, we're tennis coaches. We have student athletes on our team. We're responsible for 18 to 22-year-olds and their development in life, um, preparation for the pros, graduate school, the job force, whatever it might be. But I think we got to keep the overall vision of how can we continue to grow the game of tennis? How can we make an impact in our sport? You know, uh, tactics and the X's and O's and the technique of the game are certainly very important to that. But also at the time, by the time they get to college, you know, most of their technique is, is somewhat um, established. And yes, we're always trying to adjust a few things and maybe have to make things a little bit better to elevate their game for the next level. But still, I think we have to look at it as a macro view is what can we do to continue to help promote our sport, grow the game, better attendance, make it relevant on campus. What's the fan base going to be like? You know, can we get a bigger crowd? And even more so, can we get that next generation of tennis players, six, seven, eight-year-olds wanting to play tennis, wanting to pick up a racket and learn the game and fall in love with the game, just like I did 30-something years ago. So, you know, uh, I think it's all part of what we need to do, um, but I think it's important that we also look at the various layers of our profession. You know, a, a year ago, we all look back, and the world of college sports and, and most professional sports was essentially halted because of COVID. And all of a sudden, I, I really had a lot of time to kind of reflect, digest, and come up for air as to what we do on a daily basis and how can we make a greater impact on our sport, you know, and, and what can we do? And, you know, it was really a surreal thing because for about three months, I actually had almost nothing to do from a, a, a professional standpoint because college athletics was completely paused, you know, and, and it was so much unknown as to when we would return, but I think it gave us a, a good chance to kind of start from scratch to see what it is and have a little bit of great, uh, gratitude as to, you know, being very fortunate to be in this profession. Here it is. Majority of the time I get to wake up, put on a pair of sweatpants and a t-shirt and get on the court and work with the guys, spend a little time in the office with some admin work. And then, you know, we do it again. And it really is exciting and just something we love to do. Mm -hmm. And Grant, can you share maybe some of the ways in which you are trying to make SMU men's tennis as relevant as possible on your campus? What, what are some steps that you've been taking early in your tenure there? 
Well, first off, I think you got to remember how incredible the sport is and how many people actually play it. So even if it's a, a student on campus, uh, they love tennis. They might not be at the, the level of the varsity team or, you know, maybe they played at a high school level. But I think trying to help promote a club tennis program on campus has been one component because I really think that's one of the most fantastic programs out there. Um, I played at UCLA for two seasons. And one of my biggest regret was I didn't play club tennis longer. You know, I, I really wish I had, I could go back and play four or five seasons of club tennis at UCLA. Um, after I graduated, I ended up coaching the UCLA club tennis team until I became Billy's assistant coach with the varsity team. Mm-hmm. So club tennis, I think is a great avenue and great opportunity for so many students on college campuses to be able to participate and continue playing the game they love. Um, faculty, I think so much faculty and, and campus staff love the game. So we're inviting them out for open tennis, um, also being part of the community. I think that's something that we can utilize our facilities and our hub of a campus uh, to, to impact more. You know, we're vo- very fortunate here, even here at the Steislinger Alltech Tennis Complex on U, uh, SMU campus, we have junior programs, adult programming, league tennis, adults, women, seniors, wheelchair tennis. And I think we're able to a t- touch and affect so much more than just 25 student athletes. So I think that's something that we've been able to try to grow and, and having tournaments and weekend events during the holidays, November and December, we've been able to host super seniors, uh, you know, husband, wife, mixed doubles, open tournaments, uh, junior events, league tennis. I think these are fantastic things to be able to do, to be able to affect them. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we did a wonderful uh, a roll and run a wheelchair tennis event with um, the team where a wheelchair player played with a quote able body. And we did some doubles, up downs and some drills, really one of the most special 90 minutes we've had this season, you know, and I think uh, to be able to open that opportunity and same thing uh, this last couple of weeks, while the division one season has been done, we've uh, hosted division three NCAA round of 16 matches, the junior college uh, singles and doubles tournaments. A lot of it was held here, um, especially when weather was an issue. But it's been so wonderful to be able to impact and open our doors to the tennis community. That's awesome, Grant. And and so going back a little bit to when you started as an assistant coach, or you can maybe answer this question as, as starting as a head coach as well. You know, what what were some of your weaknesses that you identified uh, early as an assistant coach career or early in your head coaching career? And maybe how did you go and, and tackle that or attack them or try and shore up those weaknesses? With every step, you're always going to have a different um, outlook on your job description. So when I became an assistant coach, really asking a lot of questions to the coaching staff, to the players, to other coaches around the country that I've been able to you know, reach out to. I mean, someone like Coach Gould at Stanford who, who retired 10, 15 years ago, but still someone I can still call this day and and he'll pick up and give me his two cents and share his thoughts. Um, Other coaches in the league, other coaches around the country. So I I asked a lot of questions Um, and that was from every step of the way. When I became a head coach, same thing happened. You know, you try to keep your head above water. You try to process every decision you've got to make. Um, But I think deep down, if the rule of thumb is if it's in the best interest of the program, best interests of the student athletes, you're probably in the right direction and you're going to make mistakes. We're going to be able to have to adjust and pivot the direction of where you're going to go and having a good support team around you. You know, I think uh, whether whatever my role at UCLA or whatever my role is here now at SMU, having people that are willing to argue with you or give you different opinions or different outlook is going to be really, really critical. I, I don't know everything. So I want to hear different feedback from the coaching staff. You know, I want to hear feedback from the captains of my team. I want to hear their thoughts. And then here I am, I can gather all that information and then figure out the direction of where we're going to go. And oftentimes I'll hear a better idea and I want to go in that path. You know, if one of my coaches or the staff or the players makes a suggestion, I might think, hey, why didn't I think of that in the first place? Let's go in that direction. 
Mm-hmm. Or I might do a blend of my idea with their idea. And we, we, we find something in the middle that makes more sense, you know? So I think having a good perspective support team around you and be able to bounce ideas. Everyone needs their own support team. You know, uh, for me, my wife, colleagues, friends, these people, and they may, may or may not know tennis, but to be able to have a group of people to consult and um, turn to, even sometimes just vent is really important. Mm-hmm. And and Grant, I'm sure the SMU men's job was a highly coveted job, obviously, in a, in a great part of the country in Dallas, in a major city, uh, a lovely campus, incredible facility, um, has had some amazing teams. I played at Fresno State and played against some some, some incredible SMU teams back, back in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s. Sure. And so you, you get the call to interview there. How do you think you separated yourself from all the other great candidates from that job? What, what did you do? to prepare for that job? How did you conduct yourself during the interview? And and was there any type of follow-up? And can you tell us a little bit about that process? Absolutely. Uh, It was really laying out the vision that I had. You know, um, it wasn't a lot of turnaround time. So um, I'll I'll candidly admit that um, it happened pretty quickly. Um, We had just finished the NCAA singles and doubles finals, Marty and Evan won it in the finals and, you know, 10, eight in the third set breaker. Uh, the next morning we flew back. And then the next morning I was on a plane to Dallas. So I think importantly conveying who you are, why, why you feel, uh, the synergy with this position, what you would do with the role, how you see the direction, what's the future like, and trying to put that out there, you know, whether it's on paper having a conversation in the interview process, being able to also embrace and and find out yourself what the campus life is like. I think it's really a two-way conversation, just as if we were recruiting a student athlete. It's not just, you know, their ranking and their UTR and their, uh, you know, where they are in their section and their tournament results. I think there's a lot more to that. What are their practice habits like? What is their academic situation look like? And I think that's the same thing with a uh, any interview process. You want to get to know the campus, the university, what the department is, uh, what their vision is for the, the school and the program. And then more importantly, vice versa, how things go. And if these things all line up, I think there is some uh, a good connection. You know, when I shared my vision and um, the direction of where we were trying to go with this, I also asked what they wanted to see out of it. And a lot of it lined up. And we were very calibrated with the direction of the program. And then it was my job to, you know, start implementing and executing that plan. But it really is a process. You know, you're not going to do everything in year one. And I think that's something that I really needed to learn and accept and understand uh, my first year as head coach. And, and frankly, probably my weaknesses, I, I, I take on too much. So I think my first year, I really need to lay the foundation to know that, hey, this is going to take a couple of years. This is going to take a couple of seasons. We're not going to go um, overnight and, and next thing you know, become a you know, NCAA Final Four or National Indoors. It's going to take years. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something for all uh, coaches and programs to remember is, you know, we're, when we came in, we didn't make the kickoff draft. You know, and so the following season, that was our big goal was to make kickoffs. And then each and every year is, okay, then, you know, hopefully one day, then we're, we're in the kickoff draft and to win a round or to maybe get through kickoff. And then it's to reach the national team indoors, you know, and then, the, you know, this year, uh, one goal, okay, let's make the NCAA tournament. Let's, let's take the next step and each and every single year, keep progressing and moving the needle. And it's all these little battles that you're looking to win. So, you know, I think that's how we've laid it out and it's taken some time. Um, but we're excited of the direction of where we're going to go and understanding that it will take time. But throughout the interview process, I think it's it's understanding and having a two-way conversation as to uh, what the goals are of the program, what the vision is, and how do, how do we end up getting there? 
Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that, Grant, because we know a lot of coaches will be going through that process over over the summer or over the next few weeks. So, you know, you talked about your vision. So were, were you pretty clear then that you wanted to be a head coach, that you did want to leave UCLA at some point and and, and be a head coach elsewhere? And, and how did you go about kind of formulating your vision if you took over a program one day, how it would look? Is that something that was gestating over a number of years or or as you got to that summer, you got closer to thinking about maybe leaving UCLA. Can you tell us about that? I think all of us need to have a little bit of a, you know, what I would call like a small black book, a journal, a diary to make some notes and to always put stuff down in those notes to, of what we want to do. You know, what type of program makes sense? You know, each, each university has so much great things. And um, just like now with recruits, there's so many great tennis programs. There's not just one perfect one. Everyone's got its pros and cons. And I needed to find the right opportunity and fit for me. You know, and I think that's something that I, I needed to remain patient for. Uh, was I willing to leave UCLA for the right opportunity? Absolutely. Was I going to leave UCLA for any single job? No. And I think that's something important to remember for potential candidates applying for jobs, you also don't want to dilute your product and your self-worth by applying for every single job under the sun. I think making sure that the ones you apply for and the ones you pursue are of serious consideration and you believe you are the right fit for that program. And then it's, you need to find out, are they the right fit for you? Are you the right fit for them? So I didn't apply for every head coaching job. I think that's something that I was really um, keen on is making sure that the ones I applied to was the right fit. You know, my first interview for a head coaching position, um, you know, I was probably a final four or five candidates. So I had a couple interviews and that was great experience. And that was a good learning curve for me to uh, do these interviews in person and, and on the phone virtually and be able to answer questions and multiple people are interviewing you. Other head coaches on that at that university um, SWAs, ADs, uh, you know, you're, you're getting asked questions by a lot of different people. And so when I pursued this position here, you know, I thought I was ready, but I did have a clear idea of what I wanted because I made so many notes throughout the years. Mm -hmm. This type of program made sense for me, this location, why here? And I think a lot of those synergies was the, was the, was the same. You know, I think Dallas really is a wonderful town. It's in the middle of the country. It's easy to get everywhere. You know, we can play almost any university within a three-hour flight, give or take. Um, and then same thing, I can, I can recruit on the East Coast or the West Coast. I can visit my family back in California, but I can also see my family back on the East Coast, all within a pretty easy flight. You know, and I think we need to understand what type of lifestyle, what type of program we're looking for. I think Dallas was a really uh, a good fit for my wife and I, as we were ready to pick up and leave Los Angeles to move to another town and start a, you know, a new chapter in our lives together. We got to make sure that from a personal standpoint, it makes sense for the family, you know, and, and, um, and I think we all need to put those different considerations into place. You know, happy wife is a happy life. Um, if my wife wasn't going to be happy in Dallas, then I don't know if I would have taken the job, you know, but I think we were there to support each other and each other's professionals development. And I think this one made sense for both of us. Good, good. I'm glad to hear it worked out the way it did. So Grant, my, my experience with you, you know, and it's coming through on this call, obviously so much positivity, so much energy, um, you know, we're on these calls sometimes. And I think you've got a million things going on. You're maybe responding to a message or you have somebody asking you a question or whatever it is. And so, you know, can you take us maybe through a, a typical day at SMU, obviously again, early in your tenure um, and, and how are you determining your priorities on a, on a daily basis? You know, as you become a head coach, I think we start looking more from the, the big picture. Um, I would call the 30,000 foot view as to the direction of the team. You know, I think when I was director of ops, student manager, assistant coach, you're playing one role in affecting kind of the big picture. And I think, you know, we always got to keep things in perspective. Um, you know, and right now my, my, idea is that I, I need to be maybe less in the weeds and, you know, not get caught up in such nuances. And, and that's hard for me because I'm such a detail logistics oriented person that I, I like planning. Um, and, and Billy was the exact same way as, 
you know, any little detail that we could help organize, plan, detail out, we wanted to do. Um, so I think, so, you know, I, I've had to maybe take the reins off certain uh, responsibilities, but maybe look more at other, other goals and other visions and making sure that the ship is in the right direction, you know, and if we need a veer course, we can. So, um, you know, it's such an exciting journey throughout the whole thing that, that, uh, we are able to do this together, but it really takes a whole army and a whole village of people behind us to do what we do because I can't do it all. You know, as, as much as I would want to, you know, you've got to trust and put good team around you, a good support staff around you and, and recruit good players and then let them do their job. You know, let the student athletes work on their academics and then their tennis and let the coaching staff and the metal, the sports medicine staff and the strength and coach and conditioning team. You let every part do their job as you discuss it. And then I think that's how things can work most efficiently. Mm. And so then how often are you evaluating those things, Grant? Is it at the end of each semester? Is it the end of the year? Is it weekly? Is it every Sunday before you start the new week? Do you have kind of a process as to how you stay focused on the 30,000 foot view rather than the, the minutiae? You know, every little thing, I, when I wake up first thing in the morning, I, I tend to be an early riser. Um, Federer once said, uh, the hours before noon are worth double. And I, I really always took that to heart. Um, he actually, you know, he said that a couple of times and one time he said it to me in person, but I really do believe the hours before noon are worth double. So in the morning, I kind of have a, I find a time an hour just for myself. I collect my thoughts. I'm at the, I'm, I'm on my desk. I kind of go through the schedule of the, the day, go through the players, kind of just gather my uh, ideas for the day and then implement that. And then at the end of the day, I try to find a moment as hard as it is in our busy lifestyles to find a little bit of time to be able to reflect and, and, you know, recap the day and then do the same thing the next day. Um, and then I, I try to do that on a weekly basis as well, but also at the end of the semester, at the end of the season is to try to be able to be able to reflect and look and assess where we stand. So there's always these small goals, these big goals, and every single time you want to do these periodic checkpoints and, um, you know, it's very similar mindset to student athletes. We've got to assess their short-term goals as a player, but also their long-term goals as a player. You know, how are they over their four years as a tennis player in college? And hopefully I can also be the same way where in my three, four, five years as a, you know, period of time as a coach or a head coach or in whatever particular role to assess that. You know, I was fortunate to be as, as assistant coach for Billy for many years. And I did the same thing there. I wanted to assess how I could continue to enhance um, my role, my learning of the game and, and responsibilities to, to take the next step. I remember after a couple years um, as, as Billy's assistant coach, I think he felt it was time for me to understand the budget component of a head coach. And that was so eye-opening to me, to understanding the money, the where the, the dollars are, where we're coming, how... How do we spend recruiting dollars, equipment dollars, um, you know, and how do we make those ends meet between the start of season to the end of season? You know, and that was something that I felt he thought I was time for me to learn and allowed me to be to take on that responsibility even more. And then as we go from season to season between budget cuts or budget increases to to understand that role from the department standpoint. So that was a, a really eye opening experience for me. Mm -hmm. And Grant, switching gears a little bit, um, going back to, as we talked earlier about kind of the, the impact you want to make on, on the, the game as a whole, not just on college tennis. And, and you've, you know, you serve on our ITA board of directors, you serve on the USTA Southern California board. What are some changes that you'd like to see the sport of tennis make at any level uh, to ensure its sustainability going forward? You know, one positive of the, the pandemic was I think you saw two sports really flourish, and that was golf and tennis. Mm -hmm. I think understanding that these were this was a safe sport to play. You know, tennis, a couple tennis balls, two people, rackets, 78 feet apart, baseline to baseline with the net dividing you. You know, it, it just ended up becoming one of the most healthy, safe sports to play. And I think you saw tennis just thrive. And I'd love to see that continue to happen as people realize what a great workout it is, how fun it can be, 
You know, it's also a great social sport. I've been able to play some league mixed doubles with my wife. And, um, you know, I think we've been able to enjoy that um, balance between competitiveness, but also social aspect and do it in a very safe manner. You know, I think with COVID, I think we all wanted to try to find ways to be um, six feet apart and socially distance. And, you know, I think the turning point for me was when the CDC and they realized that, hey, you you can't really get COVID from a, a tennis ball. Um, I, I think that was one of the most positive feedbacks. And you saw the game just skyrocket. Um, you know, people wanted to play tennis. And I'd lo- I, I want to see that happen more. You know, parents taking their kids out, tossing them tennis balls, um, wanting to play junior tournaments, getting involved in junior team tennis. Um, even more adults now, I think, are trying to play leagues. So that's a great way. And that's something I would love to continue to still happen is that kids want to gravitate to the sport of tennis. Um, I think we have to find ways to continue that passion and share that love of the game with others um, at every single age bracket. And maybe there are ways that we can make the kids have a little bit more success with the red, orange, green dot balls and being able to have rallies early on. So I think these are all things because look, tennis is a hard sport. You know, the learning curve is very, very steep in order to be able to have a a rally with somebody, you know, it it is going to take quite a bit of effort and practice and lessons and clinics and, and effort, you know? So um, I'd love the smaller courts, the mini tennis, the quick start nets. I think that allows these kids to have a little bit more success early on to want to play it. Cause I do think, you know, with a, a lot of struggles and hurdles, it's easy for a young individual to, to, be defeated by the game because they can't serve and play points yet because they can't rip forehand winners or they're not hitting aces. You know, it it just is hard. Uh, But if we can find ways that they want to stick with the game and that's, I am where I am now because when I was six or seven years old, my dad was tossing me balls in a local park. And then I attended a one week camp in Santa Barbara as a kid in the summer. And I just fell in love with the game. Mm -hmm. And after that, I just wanted to hit balls after balls after balls and, uh, you know, whether I won or lost, I wanted to play again, another tournament, another practice, I do it again, you know? Um, so that's something I think is important is just continue to grow the game and opening our facilities up, embracing people who want to try to learn the game. Cause at first it can be intimidating. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think racket companies and, you know, manufacturers having, um, equipment accessibility. Um, and I think there's a lot of initiatives out there for, you know, recycling rackets and balls and tennis shoes, which I think are fantastic. You know, I think, you know, we, we go through tennis balls quickly and next thing you know, you've got a a thousand old balls, but those balls are still in wonderful conditions that you can, you know, repump up and, you know, reinflate and others can, you know, benefit from those. Yeah. And, and that's the thing with the green ball, right? It's not just kids, it's adults as well. I think maybe tennis mi- missed the boat a little bit and maybe that's why the rise of pickleball has been uh, happening all over the country. But if if adults also could enjoy green ball, shorter courts uh, as beginners and, and keep them in the sport and recognize it's a sport of a lifetime as well. Um, the, the other idea actually, Grant, that uh, on one of our recent master classes on camps and, and, and community hubs and clinics, um, Megan Foster, uh, she um, has come up with this great idea where she's getting her team to uh, recruit two other individuals from the campus and play a triples tournament, um, you know, twice a semester. So one at the end of the fall, one at the end of spring. So the team is going out there identifying two people that maybe have never played before. And then it's that kid's responsibility to train them up for the tournament and get them ready. And then it's just, uh, I think that'll be a fun way that coaches can can use to uh, to uh, get more people on campus involved. But okay, Grant, moving on to the last question. Um, what advice would you give to a young volunteer coach, GA or team manager listening to this who might aspire to become a head coach at the division one level someday? Well, I've always believed in, you know, choose your, choose your boss, not your job. That's another uh, real popular thing that I've always believed in. And, and it's something I still remember to this day. Um, finds a uh, find mentors and coaches and people that you want to work for, learn from and stay with it as long as you can. I also think loyalty is a, is a big deal. 
You know, if you can have success with a program and remain with the program for multiple, multiple years, I think you're going to just embrace it even more. You know, I think people who tend to do uh, coaching changes quickly, uh, it's, you know, I didn't do it. So, but I can't speak that it's negative. I'm just saying that um, as each season goes on, I think you're going to be able to do it better and learn more and, you know, take on more because a transition to a new job, a new city, a new university is really hard. And I think sometimes it's easy to get caught up in your title and uh, what your job is. And are you a volunteer assistant coach? Are you a paid assistant coach? Are you the associate head coach? Are you a head coach? Um, I think when it's the right fit, you're going to know. You're going to know when it's the right situation. But don't move from volunteer coach to paid assistant coach because of just the, the paycheck. You know, it has to be the right opportunity, the right town, the right city. Um, you know, part of reason why I've recruited so heavily from California is because I'm from there. So, you know, I know that demographic pretty well. Um, and when I was at UCLA, I still recruited in California, you know, but you want to figure out a place, a role, uh, an institution where you can be successful and you can still learn from. I am here because I really believed in the campus and more importantly, my direct superiors, the athletic directors and the senior associate athletic director and their staff, senior staff. I believed in that group that what we want to do together is very lined up. And so uh, make sure it's the right fit before we pursue jobs. And I would really think twice if you're in a good situation now, even as a volunteer assistant coach, to stay there as long as you can until you've learned so much and then you can take that to the next step. Excellent. And then moving on to a rapid fire round. So you've already talked about John Gordon's books and the impact it's had on you. Is there any other book you'd recommend coaches or a book that's had a, a great impact on you? Yep. Yeah, uh, Paul Anacone's book, uh, Lessons of Life. I've read 500 times. I've also purchased 200 copies of them because Every time I see someone who would want it, I give it my I give my copy to them and then I just buy another one myself. So I'm sure I've contributed to 40 percent of his book sales uh, single handedly. Um, also, um, Coach Wooden has been someone I've you know, I've met twice um, before he passed at ninety nine. But I've read most of his books and, you know, John Gordon's book, all of his I've read 20 times each. So uh, I think those are a couple books that have always been impacted and. And uh, I still try to learn behind me. I have a whole, you know, you can see a whole book of uh, what we got. You know, I've got a relationship grit, hard hat. What do you stand for? So, you know, I've always got books and, you know, I'm always reading and highlighting and, and making comments. So I think it's something I've really enjoyed uh, spe uh, more specifically the last four or five years. Cool. And do you have a, a favorite drill that maybe you brought over from UCLA to, to SMU? Tennis drill wise, uh, maybe, maybe not, but I love two on ones. I think that's something that it's really great to on a, on a drill day to be able to hit a lot of balls. The, you know, the solo person really focuses on key things, the side of two people focus on key things. And there's so many variations of how you can implement those at the net, at the baseline, one up, one back, focusing on the deuce court, the ad court, serving and receiving. Um, so I really enjoy two-on-ones. I think it, you can get so much out of it. Um, and it's a little different variation than, than just, you know, four on a court with doubles or two on the court. So I, I love two-on-ones. Okay. And is there anything you've changed your mind on, whether in life or in coaching in the last few years or days? I, I, you know, I probably try to slow down a little bit. Um, people may or may not believe me about that. And I'm still doubtful if I do that myself, but you know, sometimes taking a step back, reflecting, slowing things down. Uh, you know, I, I try to do that a little bit more. Um, so the jury's still out if I'm successful on that goal, but I, I try to take a moment to, to pause, maybe not make so such rash decisions or quick decisions and think things through a little bit deeper and, and, uh, and then make the, the, the choice I need to make. Yep. And then is there a favorite quote you have? 
I, I've mentioned two of them already, but you know, choosing your uh, choose your boss, not your job. I, I've always believed in that one. The hours before noon are worth double, and you know, pretty much any John Wooden quote. Um, and I'm a big believer on. So you know, uh, failure to prepare is preparing to fail. I mean, there, there's so many incredible John Wooden quotes that you just believe in um, that have resonated inside of me. And, you know, I, I look through them and, you know, they, they have a lot of these uh, Twitter accounts and uh, email newsletters that they kind of send you one each day. But, you know, I, I, uh, I try to remain positive and glass half full, but um, some great books out there, some great quotes. And and, uh, you know, I think that's that's what we want to do. OK. And then what is one lesson you hope all your players have learned by the time they graduate SMU? Wow. Great question. Uh, I think it's important to pay it forward. I think that's something we need to be able to do. Um, you know, it's easy to get caught up in what we do, um, but I'm only here because of the help, support, mentoring of so many others. Um, and I think we also in turn need to be able to do the same. And if you can help affect one other person that day or in a career or their four years as a student athlete for you and encourage them to also do the same. You know, I, I think uh, we're going to be in a pretty good place as a society. But uh, and all those things can be a little bit different. If I can spark one seven year old camper to to want to play more tennis, then, you know, that day I, I would have done something pretty good. And if I can help one of my student athletes be able to impact another individual down the road even better. Or if, if our senior on the team helps a freshman on the team with move in or dorms or you know what classes to pick i think all those different things are are integral in in helping pay it forward so that's something that i think um hopefully my players or former players will always continue to remember is as we help ourselves and grow ourselves but to, to try to pay it forward impact others and make a change very good grant well thank you for coming on the podcast thanks for your your energy your positivity your 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 you know your your uh, love for the game of tennis and wanting to grow it not just at the college level but but across the country across the world and and uh, we're lucky to have you in the tennis industry so thank you grant you're welcome in in signing off i think uh, all of us coaches and colleagues and anyone in our field it's important to, to stay connected and network. Um, that, that's why I've been such a huge component of the coaches convention, which, you know, it looks like we are having this December, um, but make an effort to, to get there, be there, contact people by email, by phone, however you can introduce yourself. Um, I had a great conversation a couple of weeks ago with a, a volunteer assistant coach, and he actually in the last 10 days was just hired as an assistant coach. And so super exciting there. And two months ago, I didn't know him. Um, and, and I think we are in such a small coaching fraternity, but network, get out there, go to the coaches convention. You'll see me. Uh, I'll be hopefully one of the first people you guys will see when you walk in, but we'll all be there. And it, it's an incredible time. Great. Thank you, Grant. Yeah, and the convention, December 3rd to 6th uh, in Las Vegas. We'll have uh, details out to all the coaches by early September. So please be on the lookout for that. So, Grant, I'll see you in Vegas. Dave, you bet. I'll see you December 3rd. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you out there. <laughs>